Out of the fourth place, chapter eight, form follows function. If you're an architect in London, you do not want to win the Carbuncle Cup. This not-so-prestigious award is given to the worst building design of the year. In 2015, the award went to Raphael Vinoli, designer of the monstrosity at 20 Fenchurch Street, locally known as the Walkie Talkie Building. This 37-story, bulbulous-shaped student housing building is claimed to have ruined a portion of the London skyline. However, it gets much worse than merely an aesthetic eyesore. One side of the building has a concave facade that takes in sunlight and focuses an immense amount of light and heat onto a small area of the street below. The building acts as a giant magnifying glass, leading to temperatures up to 196 degrees Fahrenheit at street level. Cars and bicycles have literally melted when parked out front. There is a burn mark in the carpet of a local barber shop from the day the rug spontaneously burst into flames one hot afternoon. The 2015 Carbuncle vote was unanimous. The walkie-talkie building won by a landslide. Design matters. A critical concept in architecture is that form follows function. A building's purpose should determine its design. The function should dictate the form. If you are creating a student housing building... It should be great at housing students, not melting cars. So it is with the church. Our forms need to follow our function. But as we are learning, sometimes it's the other way around. Most of the time, our form follows precedent. What have we done in the past? What has worked for another ministry? What does the denomination dictate? Much of that precedent was set not by Jesus, nor his apostles, nor the early church, but by a fourth century emperor. We are now entering part three of the journey. We have watched in part one as the mobile and living temple of Jesus was replaced by Constantine's temple of stone. We saw in part two the influence of Constantine's foundations on the church of today. We have deconstructed and exposed the issues. In part three, it is now time to build. In the following chapters, we are going to get into the details of an integrated church design. We are going to hear the stories of churches who are living out these principles in the real world. However, to go directly to design misses the point. If we don't pause to talk seriously about the function of church, then design is simply a matter of opinion. Some might think they are succeeding at church simply because they have gathered a lot of attendees and met budget. Without a clear definition of the purpose of church, we have no way of knowing if we are winning or losing or melting cars. So many good options. What is the purpose of church? People answer that question in many different ways. To make disciples, to save people, to love God and love each other, to serve our city. If you have worked in ministry any amount of time, you have probably sat through many whiteboard sessions trying to come up with the perfect words to characterize the mission of your church. Worship, connect, serve, grow, gather, give. Or maybe you picked a key verse. One church chooses the Great Commission, go and make it disciples, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Another declares that Jesus came to seek and save what was lost, Luke 19.10. Still another espouses Jesus' mission when he unrolled the scroll and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, Luke 4.18. Depending on which verse you choose, you might think Jesus was solely about discipleship, evangelism, social justice, or something else. What if Jesus cares about all of those things? Start with the why. Let's step back from church and ask the same question about another type of organization. If we were looking at an NFL football team, how would we find the purpose? 
If we showed up to one practice, we might think the goal was to push metal sleds around the grass. If we showed up to the locker room, we might think the goal was to make great speeches. When we look at a complex system like a football team, we can't identify the function by looking only at a few small parts. We can't start with what they're doing. We need to understand why they are doing what they are doing. We need a bigger picture. Simon Sinek wrote a book and gave a TED Talk that went viral because it offered a very simple way for organizations to understand their purpose. Sinek argues that we need to start with the why. Many organizations know what they do or even how they do it, but that is not their purpose. First, they need the big picture. Why does a football team push sleds around and give speeches? They do it to win Super Bowls. At least some of them do. Others are just trying to make their owners a lot of money. Either way, the why dictates everything else. Senek maintains that you need to understand your why before you move on to the other two key questions, how and what. They need to come in that order because different whys lead to different hows, which lead to different whats. Football teams that want to win Super Bowls function very differently from football teams that just want to make their owners a lot of money. Number one, why do we exist to win Super Bowls? Number two, how do we do it? By building a culture of excellence across the organization. Number three, what do we need? An excellent draft player development program and coach. Contrast that with an alternative version. Number one, why do we exist? To make our owner a lot of money. Number two, how do we do it? By selling a lot of tickets, merchandise, and advertisements. Number three, what do we need? A few superstars and a great marketing team. Do you see the distinction? Different whys can lead to vastly different hows and whats. And yet most churches focus on the what. We say things like, Church is all about good preaching and worship, word, and sacrament. Churches exist for evangelism. Church exists for social justice. But those are the whats. Those are our activities. We need to understand why we exist in the first place. Why? In order to answer why the church exists, we look not at the individual parts, but at the big picture. We know that Jesus is the central figure in human history, but what movement does history show revolving around that center? The overarching movement throughout history is from creation to fall to redemption and finally to restoration. In short, history shows a trajectory from separation to integration. In the fall, God's good creation was separated from its creator. At the end of time, we see the kingdom of God fully integrated with the kingdoms of the world. In the words of Habakkuk, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How integrated are the waters and the sea? Inseparably integrated. At the end, we see Eden restored in the great garden city. We see the end of the curse, Revelation 22.3. We see the people of God reigning on the earth just like they were created to do at the beginning, Revelation 22.5. Only now there is no separation. They are just walking near God in the cool of the day, Genesis 3.8. They are one with God. This is not just a restored Eden, but a new creation where spirit and matter are one. I don't know what the specifics of this will be like, What I do know is that what has been separated will finally be fully brought back together in a beautiful unity. The integration will be complete. Those who do not know Jesus will experience complete separation, the natural result of sin. This path from separation to integration is the course of human history. 
Paul in Colossians 1, 18 to 20 describes this process of reconciliation as the big picture of Christ's ministry. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The gospel is the proclamation that the king has returned to make all things right, to bring back together that which was separated. If we are Christ's literal body on earth, then his mission is our mission. His why is our why. The cultural mandate of Genesis to spread throughout the earth and the great commission of Matthew to make disciples of all nations converge into this overarching purpose, to see God's kingdom come, to see what was broken made right. Missiologist Leslie Newbegin calls the church a sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. In other words, the church is supposed to be a living picture of what is to come. Systematic theologians agree. Wayne Grudem says the kingdom manifests itself through the church, and thereby the future reign of God breaks into the present. Stanley Grantz states the church is the dynamic reality. It consists of a people in covenant. This covenant people pioneer in the present the principles that characterize that future kingdom of God, thereby constituting a sign of the divine reign. John Frame maintains, So the church is a dynamic body in action. It is through the church that God's kingdom comes to all the ends of the earth. Some people use different language to describe the same reality, but the big picture is clear. We are on display as a living picture of the integration to come. As we consider the design of church then, we must keep our why in mind. Why? The church exists in order to be a living demonstration of the coming integration of all things. Clarify the why. Integration of all things is a very broad concept. In order to make our why a little more specific, our second step is to clarify it a bit. Where exactly are we to demonstrate this integration? In the famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, we hear the words, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If moving from separation to integration is the overarching vision, the next question involves the extent of that separation. What exactly was separated? What needs to be reintegrated? In other words, just how far is the curse to be found? The curse did not only affect our relationship with God. It tore a divide in all three of our primary relationships with God, with each other, and with the creation itself. Number one, we were separated from God. Sin created a chasm between the holy and the unholy. Cherubim were set to guard the entrance of the garden. We were cut off. Number two, we were separated from each other. It was not only the marriage relationship between Adam and Eve that was broken, but all human relationships. One generation later, Cain killed Abel, and only several generations later, God destroyed the world because of all the violence in the time of Noah. Community was fractured. In its place came competition, personal ambition, pride, and division. Number three, we were separated from the creation itself. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Genesis three seventeen. Our mission to fill, serve, and steward the earth was tarnished. Work became toil. Resources were limited. The earth suffered drought and flood, poverty and starvation. 
It was a seedbed for every type of injustice. But the gospel has far-reaching implications. The king rose from the grave to restore all things to God. Everything that was lost in the fall is being redeemed in Jesus. Three relationships moving from separation to integration. It is no coincidence that many church leaders and thinkers come up with lists of three things when describing their mission. Mike Breen of 3DM draws a triangle and uses the word up, in, and out to describe our upward-facing relationship with God, our inward-facing community relationships, and our outward-facing mission and work in the world. Hugh Halter, in his book, The Tangible Kingdoms, uses the words communion, community, and mission. North Point Church uses intimacy, community, and influence. Again, the same three spheres of relationship. Jesus came to heal more than just our personal sins. He came to bring peace to the world broken across three relational fault lines. If that is Jesus' mission, then that is our mission. Put these three relationships in with our why, and we get the function of the church. Why? Our function? The church exists to be a living demonstration of integration with God, each other, and the world. Now that we have our function, we can shift towards design. How clarifies the methods we will use to perform our function? How? As a church, if we want to demonstrate integration to the world, there are methods that will help us and there are methods that will hurt us. Many of our church methods in the past have actually worked against our why. The Old Testament temple was designed around a particular why. The function of Israel was one nation as a light to every nation. Israel was supposed to shine so bright that the nations would come to their God. And that is what happened. The Queen of Sheba and many others showed up to witness the wisdom of Solomon and the God of Israel. If your why is one nation as a light to every nation, temple forms are the perfect how. They are great when you want to draw people to your center. The problem is temple forms also required enculturation. The closer the nations came to the Jewish center, the more Jewish they needed to become. To come near to worship, one needed to be circumcised, learn the Jewish calendar, customs, sacrifices, and rituals. To draw near to God was to become like a Jew. That is what fourth places do. They extract people from their culture and usher them into a new culture. Christendom's temples forms were effective for that very purpose. They spread Roman culture across the empire. To draw near to God was to become Roman. This is not just true historically. This is now. We have probably all seen pictures of African priests wearing English robes in the hot African sun or meeting in European buildings designed to protect against rain and snow. And this is not just over there. Evangelical kids are often unable to connect to the world around them because they are so deeply encultured into the Christian entertainment and worldview of their own limited church subculture. God's strategy with Israel, his how, was separation. The medium communicated a message, come to Israel's temple through Israel's priests in order to meet God. But that is no longer God's message. God came near. The curtain was torn. The spirit was sent. We are no longer trying to get the nations to come to our temple to become like us. We are trying to get the temple into the world of the colorful diversity. We are not one nation as a light to every nation. We are one light for every nation. There is a big difference. The heart is the same, but the how has changed. We have a very different why. 
and therefore we need a different how. We can't demonstrate integration to the world using forms of separation. As we have seen in the past three chapters, these concepts are fundamentally at odds. Place. A church can't exemplify integration with the city from a separate religious building. People. A church can't demonstrate a great leveling and equality of people from a celebrity stage. Practices. A church can't express all of life as worship when all of the resources are focused on a couple of hours on Sunday. Our method, our how, has been centered around a strategy of building fourth places, but the fourth place was designed for a different era, a different purpose. It is time we integrate place, people, and practices. These concepts of place, people, and practices that have framed this book correspond to the three broken relationships from the Garden of Eden that need to be reconciled. Number one, how do we demonstrate reconciliation with God? We must integrate place. Since our relationship with God was healed in Christ, we no longer need to go to a temple to meet with Him. If we are going to move back toward the everywhere worship of Eden, it is vital that every place is sacred, not just the church building. Integration of place means that we move the church out of the fourth place and back into culture. Number two, how do we demonstrate reconciliation with each other? We must integrate people. Since our relationship with God was healed, we no longer need a priest to bring us to God. We all have direct access to the Father. If we are going to practice the unity of Eden, we need to reintegrate our people by reuniting clergy and laity. Number three, how do we demonstrate reconciliation with the world? We must integrate practices. Since Christ was the final sacrifice, we no longer need to focus on excellent temple worship. We need to steward our cities, our streets, and our neighborhoods with justice and mercy. Our why must lead to our how. Here is what we have so far. Why? The church exists to be a living demonstration of integration with God, each other, and our world. How? By integrating place, people, and practices. The final question is what, or is it? The final question. What is an important question? For most religions, there is a pretty standard answer to that question. First, you make an impressive temple to let everyone know that your deity is superior to the competition. Then you select a few elite people to have all of the answers and power so that the common people stay dependent. Then you create a worship system so that people can conform to your religious culture. Those are the what's of religion. You start with the what of place, the temple. You add the what of people, the priesthood. Finally, you add the what of practices, the worship system. The formula has worked for millennia. Then God shocked the world. 2,000 years ago, instead of a what, God sent a who. He sent Jesus. God wanted a medium that could integrate with every culture of the world without destroying those cultures. What do all cultures have in common? People. Cultures design vastly different buildings, enjoy unique styles of music, and participate in a wide variety of traditions and rituals. Even so, they all have one thing in common. People. The coming of Jesus in the Incarnation marked a complete paradigm shift. When Jesus came to earth, everything that constituted the temple, the building itself, the stones, the Holy of Holies, the gates, the priest, the lampstand, the tithe, the lamb, the blood, everything, were all simultaneously present in the God-man, Jesus. Jesus came as a Jewish man to reach the Jews. When it was time to reach the Romans, Peter was sent to the cultural gatekeeper, Cornelius. 
Did you ever wonder why God added that extra step in Acts chapter 10? Go send people to find Peter and then have them send Peter back with them to finally get to Cornelius' house way up in Roman Caesarea. Why not just send Cornelius himself to go learn from Peter? Because God values culture. God consistently uses people as cultural bridges. Jesus called them persons of peace in Luke 10.6. God wanted Peter to struggle with entering a Roman home, something he had never done in his entire life due to laws of defilement and uncleanness. God wanted the message to come to the Gentiles on Gentile turf. Peter needed to enter a Roman home in a Roman town named after a Roman emperor filled with Roman smells and Roman customs. Can you imagine what the church in Caesarea would have looked like if Peter had tried to incorporate all of his Jewish cultural assumptions regarding temple, priest, and sacrifice? This is why the church grows not through building expansion, but through DNA transfer. Physical temples are cumbersome. The Jerusalem temple took masons and woodworkers and goldsmiths to build it and an entire tribe of Levites to administrate it. It took enormous time and energy and resources. Fourth place church expansion is the same. When we plant churches, first we need the team. Then we need the funds. Then we need the land. Then of the building, the senior pastor, the administrative help, the worship leader, the children's director, the new sound system, the discipleship program, the evangelism person, and the list goes on and on. As the church grows, the list grows. The way we develop churches is not only time-consuming and costly, but it is also culturally bound. With every decision regarding personnel, decor, worship style, and preaching methods comes a cultural decision. One style includes one or more cultures, but excludes others. Not only does this isolate the church culturally, but it also makes us continually obsolete. Fourth place church is in a perpetual fight between generations. This typically has much more to do with cultural preferences than theology or polity. What is brand new in the 1980s is now archaic. What was a timeless song is now overplayed or too loud. What used to be a fun basement for potlucks now has that funky church smell. Not so much Jesus. A person as the temple is simple, cost-effective, agile, mobile. If you want to cross cultures, you don't need to hire a hip new worship pastor. Just make a new friend. If you want to stay culturally relevant, you don't need a facility remodel. You just need some new pants. With each DNA transfer, the entire temple is at once moved into a new human being. They are now the temple as well. They now have Jesus himself dwelling in them through the Holy Spirit. This is why the central strategy of an integrated church is discipleship. This is the process that brings about the DNA transfer in a person, helps that person to be restored in the three spheres of their relationship with God, with others, and with the world, and eventually results in them reproducing the DNA in still more people. Disciples, therefore, are the basic building blocks of the church. They are the living stones being built into spiritual houses, 1 Peter 2.5. They are the body made up of many members, Romans 12.4. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16. A disciple alone is not a church, but get some together, and there you have a church. We practice communion as a reminder of who we are, a spiritual family related through Jesus' DNA. We practice baptism because it is a perfect picture of our entrance into a new family. 
When God wanted to get the temple into the farthest reaches of the earth, he didn't send a what? He sent a who? He sent Jesus. Now he sends us. The answer to our final question, what is the design for what we are trying to build, is also not a what, but a who. God's design to accomplish his why is the church. The church is not an event in a building. The church is a spiritual family on mission together. We have now come full circle. We know our why, we know our how, and we know we don't need a what, but a who. Put them all together, and here is a summary of the form and function of the church. Function, the church is a spiritual family that exists to demonstrate integration with God, each other, and our world. Our function is why we exist, our purpose. What forms will help us accomplish our purpose? The form of integrated place, people, and practices. The design we need is fundamentally different from the Christendom model. Constantine's foundation must be uprooted. Church is not a what, but a who, and it is time for a new design. Why did it work before? Some of you may be wondering what makes these concepts relevant for today. Why is this just coming up now? Haven't our churches done a pretty good job discipling people in the past, and weren't they based around the paradigm of temple forms? Why do we suddenly need to change our design? The main reason is the major cultural shift in the West in the past century. Prior to the 1900s, much of the West still had a dominant culture of Christian identity. The church remained at the center of culture. Christendom was still working for many people because temple forms work well to promote and maintain the dominant culture. Israel's temple was not separate from Israel. It was the very heart of Israel. The temple worked to promote and maintain Israel's national identity and ethos. This is the reason temple forms are still working, being attended, in some parts of Western culture. Much of the Bible Belt and small-town America has the building at the heart of their still-dominant Christian identity. There may be multiple denominational centers, one on each corner, but the culture still calls itself Christian. But Christendom was built upon foundations that are quickly eroding. The Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, and especially modern science and technology have undermined the dominant place of the church in culture. The pastor's study used to be the locus of all good answers. Not so anymore. The lines demarcating spiritual and human have blurred. A century of psychology led by Freud and Jung show us that not all personality issues are spiritual in nature. Sometimes we need counseling or therapy rather than demon deliverance. Modern medicine shows us that not all healing comes from prayer. Of course, we all need prayer, but sometimes we also need a vaccine. There is a blurring of East and West, spiritual and human. People are turning not only to pastors, but to fitness instructors, dietary experts, and the collective wisdom and experiences of the online community. The idea that we need a holy man to dispense truth from a stage used to make sense culturally. Not anymore. We have instant access to the world of experts and podcasts. We don't need a pastor to show us pictures of faraway Israel when we have Google. Not only can we get any information we want, but we can also engage in the dialogue, express our own opinion, and share it with a globally interconnected network. Thankfully, these cultural changes are not a problem for Jesus just Christendom. Jesus' life and teaching were holistic, not segregated in some sacred building. What is being dismantled is not Jesus, 
but the idea that religion can be kept to its own separate sphere of culture. The grand Christendom ideology has failed, and what is left of the foundations are quickly crumbling. Alan Hirsch in The Forgotten Ways writes, People now identify themselves less by grand ideologies, national identities, political allegiances, and much less grand stories. Those of interest groups, new religious movements, new age, sexual identity, gays, lesbians, transsexuals, etc., sports activities, competing ideologies, neo-Marxists, neo-fascists, neo-rats, etc., class, conspicuous consumption, metrosexuals, urban grunge, etc., work types, computer geeks, hackers, designers, and so forth, each of them takes their subculture identity with utmost seriousness, and hence any missional response to them must as well. In other words, Christendom has fractured. We have no cultural consensus, no grand unified ideology, no common philosophy. We are a culture of subcultures. Our fundamental struggle is that we are still using media designed around cultural consensus in a culture that has no cultural consensus. Why are we doing this? Because it's all we know. When a hammer is your only tool in the tool bag, everything ends up looking like a nail. Leaders are trying to use fourth places, our hammers, to address these cultural challenges, and they are struggling. We are trying blended services across generations and ethnicity, and the cultural complexity is such that if your service meets the needs of two subcultures, you still alienated 50 others. It isn't working. The tools of the past cultural reality cannot solve the challenges of today. It is time to let go of our well-worn hammers and try out some new tools. We need a medium that is able to integrate with each subculture rather than asking them to meld with us. We need a medium that is able to engage the complexity of our humanity rather than imagining all answers are purely spiritual. We need a new design. Thankfully, our architect, Jesus, shows us the way toward a perfect design for every age. Cowboy Church, a sidebar by Dudley Callison. My family roots extend back to small town. East Texas cowboy culture. I remember attending church on visits there. The farmers and ranchers dutifully washed and put on their Sunday best clothes. They also looked very uncomfortable. In order to attend church, they had to step outside of everything that felt normal to them. Their church day looked nothing like their every day. I was thrilled the first time I attended cowboy church. It gathered in a local roping arena the same place these churchgoers gathered on Friday night for the weekly roping. Some rode up on horseback. All of them wore jeans, boots, and cowboy hats. Their arena smelled just the same as always. The dirt broke beneath their boots. The band played songs they could relate to, including instruments that made them feel at home. Rather than asking them to step out of culture to be religious, Cowboy Church brought spirituality into their culture. I saw genuine followers of Christ enjoying Jesus in the place where they live, work, and play. Toward a better design. It is time to move toward forms of integration. We need to take practical steps to integrate our three forms of place, people, and practices along the continuum from separation to integration. All of us are somewhere between separation and integration. It's not black and white. In the past few chapters, you have had the opportunity to figure out where you are currently on the chart regarding all three forms. The road forward will look different for all of us depending on our starting place and our capacity for change. What I am proposing is not one design that will fit every culture. 
Rather, I'm proposing a way of understanding church on a continuum of forms from separation to integration that can help any church, new or old, plot a course for better meeting their function. We're going to get very practical in the coming chapters, but hopefully not limit you based on another person's experience or context. Just because there is no right way to do church does not mean all ways are equal. As we have seen, some structures promote separation by their very nature. Others promote integration. Some churches are promoting integration of place while promoting separation of people. All of us can grow more integrated across all three forms. If you are a church planner or ready to experiment with new forms, the following chapters will give you all kinds of ideas for ways of living as an integrated church. If you have an existing church building and are wondering how you would ever move beyond forms of separation, change might need to be incremental and slower paced. Regardless, change is still possible. Wherever you are on the continuum, my hope is that you are inspired to take action. Did Jesus do this? Change can be difficult. Some of you may have started reading and are now wondering if the cost of moving forward is worth it. I want to encourage you to embrace the journey ahead, not because I said it was a good idea or showed how bad the alternative is, but because this is how our Lord Jesus lived. In every way, Jesus showed us the way of an integrated church. Jesus is the living picture of the integration of all things. He showed an intimate and obedient relationship with his Father, a community where prostitutes and tax collectors are equal with religious leaders, and that mercy is better than sacrifice. In chapter 3, I talked about Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well as a paradigm shift in worship. Worship would no longer be about bringing people to the right temple, but about a mobile temple, people full of the Spirit of God. However, this story does not only show us a new paradigm of worship, but also a new wineskin of church and mission. Our unnamed woman at the well asked Jesus the simple question, Where is the right place to worship, Jerusalem or Samaria? At the heart of her question was an underlying cultural question. Who is God for, Jews or Samaritans? Which one needs to give up their cultural identity and submit to the other way of being? My heart breaks even as I write this for the number of people throughout the world who have thought they need to become like a Western Christian in order to worship God, but not Jesus. His answer to this woman was an overwhelming no. He says, a time is coming when worship will integrate with your culture in a way that restores you to your creator without your people having to become like the Jews. Jesus does not separate the people of Sychar into a new culture. He demonstrates to them how the kingdom can integrate with Samaria. Look at how Jesus models integration in the three forms of place, people, and practices. Place. Jesus meets with them on their turf, in their town, at their third place, the well. The well was integral to their cultural life. This is where people had to come for water. This is where community interaction took place. Of course Jesus went there. That was his norm. He lived and moved and walked where people lived. Jesus modeled the integration of place. People. Jesus goes straight to the bottom. He doesn't seek out the mayor or create a billboard advertisement. He goes to someone on the fringes, someone barely hanging on. He asks her for a drink. Jews don't do that. Men don't do that. But that was his norm. Everywhere Jesus went, he raised up valleys, brought down mountains, and made a level road. Jesus lived out the integration of people. Practices. 
Jesus shows mercy and compassion toward an outcast woman. He confronts systems of injustice. When he is invited into the lives of the people of the town, he goes. He doesn't invite them to the synagogue next door. He shares their normal life with them for two days. He eats their food and joins their families. Jesus lives out the integration of practices. This is how Jesus lived. This is what Jesus modeled for his apostles who would plant the first churches. Shouldn't we then follow his example in the way we build our churches? It is time to build. We now know our function and we understand the forms that will align our medium with our message. In the next chapters, we will look at what it means to build churches using integrated forms now familiar to you, place, people, and practices.